0: Yo, well, good morning. How are we doing? Good deal. All right. Uh, well, let's go Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten. We'll be hanging out there uh, this morning. So I uh, have notoriously awkward interactions with Uber drivers, um, and here's why. Um, the The question that every Uber driver eventually asks is, "What do you do?" And I'm a pastor, which means that. Typically, I get one of two responses. One, they're intrigued and they really want to talk about it, or they really don't want to talk about it. Um, But occasionally, uh, you have a third option, and the third option is they just begin to tell me everything they believe spiritually, because they just assume that I care, which most of the time I do. But they just kind of just unload, like, oh, this is what I believe about God and all things spirituality. And this one time, um, I'm taking an Uber in Denver, and I'm driving along, and he asks me, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And then he, he goes, ah, so you work for a church? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I don't really do church. I go to the mountains. The mountains are my church, which, can we just say, is the most on-brand Denver thing of all time, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, okay. And then he says what I consider to be the most poetic thing that any Uber driver has ever said. He looks out the window at said mountains. He takes a breath, looks back at me, and he says, you know, man, when I'm one with nature, I'm one with God. <sighs> poetic, right? And I'm like, "Oh okay, that sounds, that sounds good. And I kind of thought about it, and I was like, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds good, that sounds poetic, that sounds beautiful. Like, if you were to see, see that scroll across Instagram, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll repost that. Like, that sounds good to me, right? But as I thought about this idea that, man, when I'm one with nature, I'm one with God, I thought that's a beautiful idea, but that's just theologically wrong. Like, that's just not true. Like, like there is a way for us to be one with God. There is a way for us to be reconciled to God, but unfortunately, it doesn't have anything to do with going on a hike. Right Now, like, nature is awesome, right? It's refreshing and restful and worshipful. It allows us to, to see God's creation and marvel at who he is and what he's done. But I, I sat there and I just kind of thought, and that sounds really nice, but you're wrong. That's, that's just not how we're made one with God. So what did I do? Absolutely nothing. I didn't say a word. I sat there, and I was like, "Mm, you're wrong, but I said nothing, and here's why. Because I was terrified of offending this guy. I was terrified of telling this guy that he was wrong. Why? Because you you and I both live in this world where where our culture says that all roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. It's like God is on a mountaintop, and there's this path and this path, and it doesn't matter which path you and I take, because at the end of the day, all roads lead to God. The problem is the Bible. The Bible is very clear that all roads do not lead to God. It is encouraging in the fact that there there is a road that leads to God. There is a road that leads to God, and that road is very much accessible. But the scriptures will teach, man, not all roads lead to God. Yet our culture says that is offensive. What right do you have to tell me which path I can or cannot take? So we live in this tension as believers of what our culture says and what the word of God says. So what I wanna do today is I want us to, to wrestle with this t- tension and I want us to wrestle well. I want us to wrestle in a way where we acknowledge that we live in a world where, I mean, it is so offensive to tell people that they're wrong. But what do we do with the scriptures that say, no, no, there's, there's only one road. There's only one path, I mean, it is accessible It's not hidden. It is very much accessible, but there's just one. What do we do with that? So if you are a note taker, I'm going to make today your favorite day because I'm going to be very, very note taker friendly. All right. So here's our kind of roadmap for where we're going. I want to talk about three specific things. One, what salvation is not. Two, what salvation is. And three, what we now do with that information. I want us to talk through what salvation is not, what salvation is, and what do we do with that information because um, we, again, we live in this world where there's just this tension and how do we as believers navigate this tension well where we stand on truth yet we don't offend, right? That's where we're going today. So let's start with what salvation is not, okay? Salvation is not simply a passion for Jesus. Salvation is not simply a passion for Jesus, and I'll show you where we get that. Um, Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul writes this. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal or a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, so, so Paul, Paul starts off, and he um, starts this section off very much like he started off Romans 9, with this burden for his Hebrew or Jewish brothers and sisters. And he says right off the bat, he says, My greatest desire, my heart's longing, my prayer." is that my Jewish brothers and sisters come to salvation, that they come to know Jesus in a salvific way, All right? So, so right off the bat, we see that, that there are some that, that are not saved, All right? Paul, Paul is, is inferring right off the bat that there are some that are taking a path that does not lead to reconciliation with God. And he says, man, my, my heart like longs, like, I just want them to experience salvation. But then he says something really fascinating. He says, for for, for I can attest that they have a zeal for God. They have a passion for the things of God. And so right off the bat, that should kind of make us pause. Because Paul is saying that, man, these people are not saved, yet they are zealous for the things of God. They are passionate about the things of God. Paul's not referring to some kind of heathen pagan. No, he's talking about religious people. He's talking specifically about people that that fast and tithe and pray and memorize scripture and Sabbath and eat certain things and don't eat certain things. Like like the follow the law of God to the best of their ability. He's talking about really good, moral, nice, religious people. And he's saying they're missing it. They're missing it. They have all the zeal, all the passion, but they're missing it. Now, I don't know about you, but that is one of the most sobering ideas in all of Scripture. That You can have all the passion and all the zeal for the things of God and still completely miss it. And here's why I think that's so important for us to understand. Um, I've been working with college and young adults for six, seven years now. And over the years, I've seen so many people walk through our doors because they have a passion for the things of Jesus. They have a passion for the teachings of Jesus. And to be honest, like, like what's not to love about the teachings of Jesus, right? I mean, they're, they're awesome. That, that whole, hey, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, that's awesome. The whole calling out hypocrites by saying, hey, you know, take, take, take the log out of your own eye before you point the speck out in your brother's eye classic Jesus, right? Like good stuff, right? All throughout scripture, there's all these just amazing things that Jesus says and, and it's hard to not have a passion for the things that he says. But the reality is that passion is not enough. Zeal is not enough. As as John Stott says, sincerity is not enough because we may be sincerely mistaken. And so what happens is that over the years, I've seen people walk in these doors with just a passion for the things of Jesus. But one of my favorite things is to keep up with students long after they've left because I just love to see what you guys go do in the world and how you impact the world. But one of the things that breaks my heart is when I bump into a student three, four years after they finish school and it becomes clear that that Jesus just doesn't really fit in their life anymore. That that Jesus was really cool in college. That the teachings of Jesus really worked well in college college, and they really liked the community in college, and it, you know, the teachings of Christ kind of saved them from making some mistakes, or they've avoided some pitfalls, and it it was really good for that season. But the teachings of Jesus, man, when when you get into the real world, doesn't exactly fit, right? Like, doesn't really fit. The whole idea of being like gentle and lowly, that, that, that doesn't work in the business world. You get run over, that idea of turning the other cheek, yeah, that, that doesn't work in the real world. Sometimes people just have to pay. You can't turn the other cheek. The whole idea of, you know, storing up treasures in heaven ra- rather than treasures on earth, that's a, that, that, that's a really beautiful idea before you have to pay for an apartment in uptown, Because treasures in heaven don't buy mimosas. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you, you come to this idea where it's like, you no, know, no, Jesus was great in college. I was really passionate about him. Then I was passionate about what he taught and what he said. And that worked really well in college. But as soon as I left and I entered the real world and I realized what it took to make it, it just didn't fit anymore. That's a very common story. Why? Because passion is not enough. Zeal is not enough. Passion will run out. So we are not saved. We are not made one with God simply through passion for the things of Christ. So what does bring salvation? If it's not passion, what is it? Well, Salvation comes through faith in the resurrection. Salvation comes through faith in the resurrection. Let me uh, read to you uh, this next section starting in verse 5. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what what does it say? That the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. And then this is the hinge verse, verse 9. All right, let me explain what's happening here. So Paul starts off, and he quotes what seems like very out of context, weird things about the abyss and heights and stuff like that. But what Paul's doing is Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 30. And essentially he's saying, hey, when we think about sal- salvation, it is accessible, it is attainable. We do not have to c- like climb to the highest heights or descend to the lowest lows. We don't have to search high and low for what salvation entails. It is near to us. We have access to it. And what is it? Verse 9. It that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that we believe that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That is the message of the gospel. Now, if you've been around the church for any period of time, this probably sounds like very typical boilerplate, Christianese gospel jargon, right? Confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead and you will be saved, right? Like, got it, check, next. What else? But I think that we can come to a place in our faith where, where we allow statements like this to just become a white noise. But the reality is this is a very radical statement. This is a a very kind of mind-bending statement to actually wrap our heads around. So let me rephrase what what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, passion is not the same thing as salvation. The way that we're saved is this, is that you and I must verbalize that Jesus is Lord, meaning that he is the ultimate authority over our life that we take every single cue from Jesus, that that his teaching, that his way of life is the foundation of every decision we make and everything that we do, right? That we verbalize that that he is the end all be all, ultimate authority over our lives, that that, that we take all of our cues from him and that we believe, that we've put our faith, that we have banked our life on the idea that once upon a time Jesus was dead, And then he stopped being dead. That's crazy, right? That's a heavy thing. Like, yes, this is an accessible road, right? This this path to God is accessible. It is attainable, but it's also extremely difficult. I think oftentimes we don't slow down to just acknowledge how strange our faith can be. Because what Paul is saying is that if you want to be one with God, if you want to be reconciled to God, it means declaring that Jesus is your authority. And that you have banked your life on the reality that a dead guy stopped being dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a skeptic at heart. And so there are times when I hear this and I think, I can get behind the Jesus is Lord thing. I think his teachings are pretty dope. But the whole, like, a dead guy coming back to life, like, ah, I, don't, I don't really know about that. Like, I can believe that in Christian circles because that's kind of what, what you do. But to actually really, truly, honestly believe and bank my life on this resurrection idea, that's pretty gnarly. So I don't know who this is for. But if you're skeptical in the room, um, I want to lay out for you just a really brief two-minute flyby over why we can actually believe the resurrection happened. Because while our faith requires just that faith, our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is a faith that is an informed faith, a faith that is based on history and evidence and logic and reason, even in crazy claims like the resurrection. So let me briefly explain to you why we have every reason to believe this crazy claim about a dead guy coming back to life. Ready? Here we go. Every credible historian, both Christian and non, um, believe three specific things right? One, that Jesus was a real person. Two, that he was crucified by the uh, Romans around AD 30 to around AD 33. And three, and most importantly, that his tomb was empty three days later. Every historian, both the Christian or non-Christian, believed these three, th- three things, that Jesus was real, that he was killed, and that three days later his tomb was empty. So the question that every single person on the face of the planet has to come to terms with is what happened to the body? That's the question that every single person on the planet has to figure out. If every historian believes that it is historical fact that his tomb was empty, what happened to the body? Well, as believers, we believe the gospel accounts that he resurrected, that God raised him from the dead, and he victoriously conquered sin and death. But for those that are skeptical, for those that don't believe in the resurrection, which makes total sense, they had to come up with three specific theories on what could have happened to the body. So let let me briefly walk through what those theories are. The first is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Christ didn't actually die on the cross. He fainted. And when they put him in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and he rolled away the stone and uh, convinced his followers that he victoriously conquered death. The problem is that, uh, one, Romans were masters at murder, right? So they very much knew how to make sure that a person was dead. So they would have not let him off the cross without ensuring that he was dead. Two, even if he did faint, the crucifixion process was barbaric and brutal, and you're not going to have enough strength to roll away a tomb, much less convince your followers that you victoriously conquered death when it looks like you just got your butt kicked, right? So that's the swoon theory. Wrong tomb theory is number two. The wrong tomb theory is the idea that when the women went to go uh, find or dress his body on the third day, that silly women just went to the wrong tomb. Right? Classic mistake, wrong, wrong tomb. The major problem with that is that the person that owned the tomb could have very easily said, nope, it's right there. This is the right tomb, right? So wrong, wrong tomb theory says that they just went to the wrong tomb. and t- 2,000 years, we have a billion people on the planet that believe this because they went to the wrong tomb. Um, third is this. And this is the most believable one, um, the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory says that in the night, the disciples of Christ went and they stole the body and they told everybody that Jesus resurrected. That's a much more plausible idea, except for one specific fact. The disciples all went to die horrendous, barbaric deaths, specifically for their belief in the resurrection. And if you read the gospel accounts, these men are a bunch of cowards. They are cowardly and dysfunctional on every single page. Then all of a sudden, when you read the book of Acts, something changes. And these men go from being cowards to being these bold guys that go toe-to-toe with the very authorities that killed Jesus. And they go to their deaths proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't die that type of death for a lie. At any point in time, all they had to do is say, I'm just kidding. It was a joke. We made it up. The body's over there. I'm so sorry. Please don't hurt me. That's all they had to do. But they all went to their graves declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, One last little anecdote. There was a a guy named Simon Greenleaf who was a Harvard Law professor back in the 1800s. And Simon Greenleaf wrote Mm -hmm. the book on on evidence. You, for almost 100 years, it was the book that you would study in school about how to, you know, handle evidence. He was also an outspoken atheist. And so one day, he had a couple students walk up to him and say, you know, we think that you are brilliant. We love uh, all that you do and all that you kind of think, and stuff like that. Um, But we also believe that, Christ actually came back to life. Would you be willing to use your book on evidence to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead? And he says, absolutely, I would love to. He sat down, examined all the evidence, and he became a follower of Jesus because he came to the conclusion based on the historical evidence. It's like in a court of law, I could not prove that Jesus did not come back to life the evidence for his resurrection is staggering. And he went on to become one of the greatest apologists for the Christian faith. I tell you all of that because I don't want us to to fly past the strangeness of our faith, that our faith hinges not on passion, not on zeal, but our faith hinges on our belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ And as crazy and just senseless, as that may seem, our faith is built on logic and reason and historical evidence. And so we put our faith in the resurrection, but we do it because there's ample evidence that it actually happened. And so my hope is that if you're in the room today, and this is the first time that you've heard this, or you've walked in here and think, man, I, I feel this tension because I love Jesus and I love what he teaches. I just don't don't know if I can wrap my mind around this whole resurrection thing. My hope is that God is opening your eyes to the truth of the resurrection in a new way because that is how we're saved. All roads do not lead to God. There is one that does, and it is accessible. It is attainable, but it requires our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with this information? if we understand that that salvation is not passion, that salvation does come from faith in the resurrection, what do we do with this? What do we do with this information? Simply put, we take it to the streets. We take it to the streets. Let me read to you this last little section in verse 14. Paul says this. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the, the, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard for, from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. All right, so what Paul's doing is he saying, all right, if this is how salvation comes, right, if if salvation comes specifically through faith in the resurrection, well then how are people to put their faith in that event, how are they to believe if they've never heard about it, and how are they to hear about it if no one has ever told them about it, if no one has ever preached, and how are they to go and tell and preach if they've never been sent before? So all of a sudden, Paul is making this argument that hey, there is an accessible, attainable way to the heart of God. There is a way that we can be reconciled and made one with God, but people have to know about it. People cannot believe in something that they've never heard about. And how are they supposed to hear unless we have someone that goes and preaches, that goes and tells? Now, maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, yes and amen. Amen. Someone needs to preach. Get after a preacher boy. Like maybe that's kind of where where uh, you are. But here's what I love about this text. This word for preach um, is a Greek word uh, that means to herald. To herald. And what a herald was um, back before newspapers and CNN and Twitter feeds and TikTok, um, where we all get our news. Right. Um, there's uh, there were these guys called heralds, and the herald was the one person in town that knew the news. And heralds would walk through the middle of town, the marketplace, the town square, and they would just proclaim, they would yell out the news of the day. And so I love the imagery here because if a herald chose to be silent, everyone remained in the dark. If a herald said, I don't feel like opening my mouth right now, no one got the news. And the imagery here is Paul is saying, you and I, we're heralds. Our job is to understand that we possess very good news. But that we have a world around us, a city around us that is in the dark. And so our job is to take it to the streets, to take it to the streets and proclaim the good news. Because if we refuse to open our mouths, people remain in the dark if we choose to be silent, people remain in the dark. So as we close, I just want to give you a couple of applications on what it means to be a herald as we go forth, as we take this to the uh, streets. So let me talk to two specific people in the room. First off, if you're in the room and you've been coming and you've been wrestling with man, I don't really even know where I fall. I don't really know what I believe. One, I'm so glad that you're here. Like our hope and prayer is that this is a place where you can come and wrestle and ask uh, really hard questions and um, hopefully find really good answers. But if you're in here today and and you can honestly say, man, I'm passionate about this stuff. I'm curious about it, but I've never put my faith in the resurrection. I've never actually believed this thing actually happened. My my honest prayer all week is that God would graciously use me to be the herald in your life today. That for the very first time, God has opened your eyes to see the truth. That you have a God who has sent his son to die on your behalf, but then rose from the grave and has victoriously conquered sin and death. That that actually happened. So if today is one of those days where things just clicked and Proclaim that, confess that, confess that Jesus is Lord. Tell a friend, tell someone on staff, honestly, tell me. I would love to know that. We, we would love to, to walk with, with you and disciple you and help get you some next steps to actually be an apprentice of Jesus. So if that's you, my hope and prayer is that today is an eye-opening day where you have heard um, the good news of Christ heralded, maybe for the very first time, and that that results in you just confessing joyfully that Christ is Lord. The second person, maybe you've been following Christ for a while and, and you think, man, I, I, I believe this, that I, I, I'm, I'm afraid of being, being a herald. I'm, I'm afraid of opening my mouth. It just, I just don't know how to do it, right? Taking it to the streets is a very vague application. So let me give you three very specific ways to kind of start being, being a herald. Um, the first is this, I would encourage you to start by asking a friend their opinion on Jesus start by asking a friend their opinion of Jesus. And here's what I mean. I think that oftentimes we feel this hesitation to, to talk about faith because we think we need a presentation, right? We think that, that we need this perfect gospel presentation and I can sit down and map it out and draw it out and help you see that, you know, this is what actually happened, right? And so we think that like, if I don't have my, my presentation ready to go, then I can't actually share my faith. And the reality is that uh, we don't need presentation as much as we need conversation. And one of the best ways to enter into these conversations is by simply asking someone their opinion about Jesus. Because everyone has an opinion on Jesus. Everyone has a thought. Everyone has an opinion on the church, on Christianity, on God, on the resurrection. Everyone has some sort of opinion. So just start off by uh, saying, hey, what do you think about church? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about God? What do you think about Christians? What do you think about Christianity? And my guess is that if you just ask someone their opinion and you're willing to listen, you'll learn all kinds of stuff that you never knew. Maybe someone uh, grew up in church and they have no problem with the teachings of Jesus, but they had a really horrible church experience as a kid. And they've sworn off church and they say, I want nothing to do with those hypocrites. That's valid. That's a very different conversation. Or maybe they, they say, you know, I had a really strong faith in high school. I, I had a really strong faith in high school. And then I came and I did the whole freshman year thing. And I made some choices I'm not really proud of. And, and now I just feel shame and guilt. And I feel like I can't step foot in the church. And I feel like everyone in that room that knows me will judge me. That's great information to have. That's a very different conversation where you get to step in and remind them of the grace of Jesus Christ right? When you ask them their opinion, it starts a conversation, right? That's an easy way to just start taking it to the streets. The second is this, is to look for opportunities to share what Christ has done for you personally. Look for opportunities to share what Christ has done for you personally. Again, an- another reason I think that we are slow to share our faith is because we think that we must have all of the answers. We must think we must know everything, and we're afraid if someone asks, uh, asks us a question and we just don't know, One, the reality is I don't know is a valid answer. In fact, I think it's refreshing. I think it's refreshing to say, it's a great question. I don't know, but I'd love to help you figure it out, right? You don't have to know every single answer before you start talking. So start with what you do know. And what you do know is what Christ has done for you in your life. Because people can't argue with a story. Right, if you start sharing, man, I don't know every answer to every single theological question that you may ask, but I do know what Christ has done for me. That's a powerful story. A lot of my uh, story has to do with uh, losing my father in college and kind of wading through all of that and, and, and experiencing the Lord in a way where I had peace, just like unprecedented peace in the midst of a really chaotic situation. If I tell someone about the peace that God gave me in a very chaotic time, they can't say, mm, that didn't happen. Because it did, like that's, that's my story. So, so start with what you do know, which is what Christ has done for you um, personally. But lastly is this, want things for people and not from people. Want things for people and not from people. And here's what I mean. Somewhere along the way in the church, we have started to treat the gospel like a sales pitch where we think, okay, I have this quota that I need to meet. I need to share this this pitch with every single person that I come in contact with. And so we hound people and we corner people and we text them about one thing and then we meet up for lunch and we bait and switch them. And it's like, ah, gospel, right? And so we do all these things, right, where we try to kind of just pitch people on Jesus. And people can sniff out a sales pitch. People can sniff it out when they realize that you want something from me. You don't want anything for me. But our posture as believers, as heralds, should never be wanting things from a person, but only for a person. That posture completely changes our interactions. That we sit down and we say, hey, I know the truth. I know how we are reconciled to God. I know the path. And I want to show you the path, and not because I'm trying to hit some quota, but because I deeply care about your soul. I want things for you, not from you. That's a very different posture. And if you have questions about this, man, talk to us. Talk to our staff. Man, get hooked up with a pack. They literally exist to kind of help you share your faith. There's so many ways that we would love to to help you be heralds that really take this truth to the street. Um, Sometimes I think uh, about that Uber driver, where he is, what he's doing. And I think about a statement think about his statement, how his reconciliation to God, his oneness with God comes from something that does not have the capacity to bring oneness with God. And I think about my cowardice. I think about how terrified I was to offend this guy. And while we never want to offend, the reality and the truth is that all roads do not lead to God but there is one that does. There is a road, there is a path that leads to God, and it is accessible. So my hope and my prayer is that we are people who light the way, that show people the path, because there absolutely is a way to God. Let me pray. Father, I am, very much aware that uh, the exclusivity of Christ, the idea that there's only one way um, to be one with you is a very unpopular idea. So that I am aware that it is uh, offensive to the world around us. But God, um, my hope and my prayer is that we are people that have eyes to see this, uh, not as offense, but as grace. You are a God who has graciously not left us in the dark. You have not left us to just wonder how on earth we are reconciled to you, how we are made right with you. But God, you have gone to great lengths to show us, to make it abundantly clear. That not all roads lead to you, but there is one that does, and it is through your son. Through his death that paid for our sins and through his resurrection has given us life. And so, Father, may today be a day where our hearts are stirred. May our hearts be changed. May we have a burden for those around us that simply don't know the truth. But may we not just have a burden, may we have a burden that moves us to action, to be heralds, to take this to the streets, to let people know that there is a way to be made right with God. That You can be one with God. May we be excited to speak that truth. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.